there I am. Um, for the notes that I have, if you need that to help yourself stay awake, otherwise um, you don't need to have it for me. <clears throat> this is our, this is actually the last lecture as far as the, uh, this material goes. Um, the, it says seven of eight because the eighth session, which will be in two weeks, because next week is our Thanksgiving service, but um, that two weeks from now will be sort of a, a forum for you to express your uh, questions, or even if you, if someone would like to prepare or have a statement to, to um, say something to counterbalance my assertions, I have a, um, I'm persuaded that my, my assertions on this material, I'm persuaded are 10 for 10. I don't know how many there are, but you know what I'm trying to say is I'm persuaded of my assertions, but I am also persuaded that I might be wrong. And uh, some of it is not necessarily thus saith the Lord material. And so I need to be teachable and so I'm giving the last session as an opportunity for you to respond back or to have a, another perspective. Do you want to get pens? Do we want to get some pens? Do we need, do you need pens or paper? We're all good? Okay. Okay, so as, as has been helpful for us each time, there's a fair amount of review each week. And so even if you've never been before, this is you'll be okay. So um, our agenda for tonight is to remember the purpose of this course. We rehearse that every time. And then to review John's assertions so far. And then tonight we're going to finish with what are the priorities for Christians in the realm of politics and the world in general? What should our priorities as Christians be? And so that is my topic for tonight. But again, to remind us of the purpose of this course, it's not to pursue or persuade uniformity. So this is not a, in any effort for me or our church to try to persuade you to vote A or B. Um, this is too, though, the purpose is to establish a safe place for deep feelings I know a lot of us care very much. All of us care very much about these things. We want to do right and be right. And sometimes at church we don't have a place to say those things about politics because we're so afraid, right? What is the rule? You're not supposed to talk about religion or politics. <laughs> and we're talking about both at the same time. So this is a third rail world. And so we're, we want to be safe and trust each other even if we say things we're not sure about. I guess part of what I, what I value and I appreciate about your response is that you're letting me say things and I know you love me afterwards anyway. And so it's okay to disagree. And then see um, the th other pur purpose of the class is to pursue unity based on the gospel. So again, not uniformity in our outcomes, but unity in our love for the Lord Jesus and for one another because of what the gospel has done for us. And then fourthly, and I'm, I'm sorry to lose hope a little, but I'm still hoping that you'll be amazed at Jesus and the power of the gospel. I want this to be transformative, that by the end of this 
eight weeks, you will say, wow, we really are in a different place than we were. I was afraid of you, my brother and sister, or I was afraid that, but now I'm, I'm okay with you. And so I, I hope that you'll be amazed at Jesus. And the gospel always makes me amazed anyway, so I'm sure I'll be okay. So that's the purpose, right? I'm not, this is not a, this is how you should vote course. This is a, how should we as Christians think about politics? All right, so then the, um, I want to review my assertions so far. So over these seven weeks, these are the things I've tried to assert. First of all, that the example of the early church is a, a strong example of the Jew and Gentile overcoming their conflict is a strong indicator that the gospel is strong enough to do that. It's strong enough to overcome what was enemies, the Jew and Gentile, and their uh, terrible divisions based on their perspectives of God's plan and their own role in it. And so the amazing thing is that God made the two one into the church. And if he can do that, he can certainly help a bunch of uh, 21st century Americans figure out how to love Jesus most. Um, the second thing I tried to assert is that the gospel itself, by virtue of its transcendent nature, is neither conservative nor liberal in the political sense of those terms. It's, it's greater than and bigger than. Um, the gospel is the most conservative. You know, the, the cross is the most conservative event in all of history, you could argue, I'm arguing, because the law had to be kept no matter what. And so even God's son went to hell because he became sin for us. So it's the most conservative in that traditional sense. But the gospel, the cross, is also the most liberal event in all of history because it's freely given to all who believe whether they deserve it or not. And the fact is that nobody deserves it. And so God holds the law and frees all who could not fulfill it all at the same time. So the gospel, so part of what I was trying to say here also that is that if, if I were to be so bold as to say you should vote for John Dubois for drain commissioner because he is aligned with the gospel, you could not do so without compromising the gospel because I do not perfectly manifest the gospel. I'm flawed, and you would have to somehow compromise the beauty of the gospel in order to say it was one for one with any human being candidate. The only person you could vote for without compromising the gospel would be the Lord Jesus, right? And he is already the king. So, so I just tried to point out, try to at least understand that no matter which real-world candidate you vote for, there's never going to be a 100% overlap between that person and the gospel. You're going to have to, you should not use the words, this is the Christian choice, because you are compromising the definition of Christian when you say that, because nobody's the perfect Christian choice. You could say, most Christians would choose this. That's a different statement. But to say that this is the Christian choice in a secular context is contradictory. That's my assertion. The third assertion I made was that if 
the political arena involves disputable matters. Remember, we spent a long time in Romans 14 talking about what disputable matters are, things like uh, whether or not you're supposed to honor the Sabbath differently than other days or whether you're supposed to eat meat or not. Those are disputable matters, according to Paul. And if some components of the political process are disputable, if they're involved, then we are supposed to treat one another accordingly, as instructed in Romans 14, and that is to not condemn one another, to allow a person to be fully persuaded in their own mind. You're supposed to be persuaded. It doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It just means that as you persuade yourself of a particular issue, you can be fully persuaded, but you're not supposed to condemn somebody who comes to a different conclusion because they answer to their Lord themselves and not to us, and we're not the judge. And so I know that not all maybe thinks, not all of you necessarily agrees that politics is a disputable matter, but I want to argue that at least some of it is. And if some of it is, you ought to treat a different a believer who votes differently with the same respect that Paul instructs in Romans 14. The next assertion I made was we spent a week talking about spheres of influence or sovereignty, responsibility, and that the family is responsible for certain things like raising children and, and um, uh, marital faithfulness, and this, the church is responsible for certain things, and the individual is responsible for certain things, and the state according to the Bible, is responsible for certain things, like it bears the sword to punish the wicked and, and other things. And so when God creates these institutions or these spheres, he has done so in a way that each is accountable for its own responsibility. And in the same way that it's none of the government's business to tell me how to what time to put my children to bed, it's also none of the church's business to tell the government what the speed limit should be on Prairie Street. And so there's spheres of responsibility. And conflicts come because one of the sources of conflicts is that sometimes spheres will get in overlap, right? The government will start saying, you can't punish your children that way. Or the church will say things to the government like, you can't point that person as the priest because he's not part of the church the right way. Or so you get the whole mixture of church and state that plagued uh, history for a long time. So I'm just trying to point out that there are spheres of influence and they're helpful to think that through. Like when we get involved in an issue like the definition of marriage, remember we talked about that, we start to think, whose job is that? Is it the church's job to define what marriage is? Is it the family's job to define what marriage is? Or is it the state's job to find out, to define what marriage is? But it gets all complicated because the state controls the taxation rates for married couples, and the state controls the contract implications of a divorce, and the states do all that, but the church often does weddings, and I say at the wedding, by the power invested in me by the state, I pronounce you husband and wife. So I'm acting as an emissary for the state, but I won't marry. 
outside of God's definition of a marriage. I won't do that. What if the state compelled me to have to do that? You see how these spheres get in trouble when something goes awry. And, and sin or wickedness that messes with the definition of marriage has to be dealt with in a way that honors the spheres. And so I would argue that the church's sphere is to proclaim the truth and to teach responsibility morally regardless of political affiliation. And the state's job is to do justice. And so when the state is unjust, the church can say that's unjust. But I don't think the church should say that's unjust, therefore vote for my guy. Right? There's a difference, a different line is crossed. But anyway, that's the context for that discussion. The, uh, the next assertion I made was that the decision-making process is like a black box. Remember my cool diagram? There's uh, inputs, and then there's the box that does all the processing, and then out comes a vote, ka-chink, ka-chink. It's either yes or no, or candidate A or candidate B. And what I tried to persuade you was is that if a person votes candidate A and a different person votes candidate B, the differences in the outcome are as different as you could possibly make, right? They're the opposite. But the actual difference of the persons might not be nearly as opposite. They might have just, there might have been 40 factors and one of them just weighed one factor a little bit more and it tipped the scale. And so you might have 80% of the content in total agreement between these two persons. And so the black box analogy reminds us that just because somebody votes differently than us doesn't mean that they're as different as we might conclude. And it's also dangerous to reverse engineer and say, oh, you voted for A, that means you're a, a racist. And the other person said, no, you voted for B, that means you're a Marxist. I mean, you, you can't reverse engineer the outcome and draw judgmental conclusions against the other person for what the variables were for them to vote that way. You just need to understand that that's, it's, it's complicated. There's foreign policy, there's domestic policy, there's economic policies, all those things go into the mix. And for some people, it might just be that they knew the person and it might not be all the reasons you think at all. So the point is, is that I just wanted you to understand that not everybody Believe it or not, not everybody thinks exactly the same way I do. I just, I still find that to be rather consternating. I live with people who don't think exactly the way I do. And viva la difference, right? Is what Pepe would say. <laughs> All right, so on one of the weeks, I asked the question, suppose that a believer who starts with the same inputs like the law of God, the Bible, the Lord Jesus, the gospel, starts with those same starting points and still comes out with a different answer at the end of the day. What, could, what would have to be true for that believer to vote differently than me? And I tried to submit to you that for example, one of the reasons that are, are uh, typically, it's not 100%, but typically our 
black brothers and sisters in the Lord vote differently than most of the white folks around our church, right? What, what would have to be true for us to grant they're still Christians, <laughs> they're still okay? And what I tried to explain to you, because this was come a little bit partly from my friendship with my pastors in Muskegon, which was never intended to be a political encounter, with just friendships around the gospel. But I learned from them that in their perspective, there is a more imminent threat than pro-life for us might be. And so while they would be, they would affirm the pro-life position, their black box, no pun intended, their, their um, process of making the decision included what they perceive as a more imminent threat of racism to them as more urgent than I would have perceived it. Therefore, I was free from that variable in my thinking, and I came to a different conclusion. And so I just wanted to point out that one possible reason for two believers who both love Jesus and who both love the gospel and who are both pro-life and both anti-racist and all those, we would agree on every detail. We came up with different decisions because of the perception of more imminent threat to me, to my people, to my family. Um, it was interesting how they talk about, you know, if I said I had the talk I had the talk with my daughter. What would you think I was talking about? You'd think I was talking about birds and bees and right that's the talk. In their lives, the talk is don't be Emmett Hill. The talk is when you go outside, don't make a scene, don't speak up, don't talk back. You come home safe. The talk for the my brothers is when they tell their kids is how to be a black American and not get in trouble. Now, it may be old-fashioned, it may be out of date, but they grew up with the talk. They all grew up with the talk. And so for them, that was a more imminent threat. So anyway, that's something I wanted you to be aware of. And then um, last time, we talked about in the realm of politics in particular, I wanted to point out that there are specific dangers to those of us who are students of the Bible. We have a tendency to view, we have a high view of truth and a high view of our certainty about it. And so that leads us to maybe have, and so I tried to point out a few possible dangers. Like one of the things if we, as students of the Bible, is we, we might think that our, we might be a little bit too certain about our eschatology. If you know for sure if you think you know for sure how and when Jesus is coming back or what God's doing in the Middle East or what God's doing with Russia and China, if you have a really, if you have a very strong indication through your eschatology, what the Bible teaches about future events, if you play Antichrist bingo, you know, the who's the guy this time, that you might have a different political orientation than if you were a believer who has a different view, like an amillennial, non-rapture view at all, that maybe we have to, uh, what the Bible teaches is that Jesus will come back after we clean it up, not when it's 
at the end of the Great Tribulation or before the Great Tribulation. The point is, is that how you view eschatology influences your political point of view. And as students of the Bible, we are particularly prone to that because we love a good series on Revelation. I, you know, I have a, um, uh, a dental hygienist who's a believer and my mouth is occupied. So she talks all the time, right? But she goes on about these, uh, this teacher that she listens to every day about how he's interpreting this is what's going on and this is, and, he, and a lot of surety in her mind about how God's working. And, and it's very fascinating and it sells books and it gets a lot of attention. But it's, I would say that's really highly speculative because the Jesus I read says nobody knows the day or the hour. And so, that's one of the dangers. Uh, there were some other dangers, remember? Um, I, I can't remember them off the top of my head right now. Does anybody remember any of the other dangers of the students of the Bible that I pointed out? Um, uh, say again? Yeah, maturity level. A, a, a new believer is going to have a different view of social issues maybe than a mature believer. What you think about human nature is a really big one, right? If you have a, is, is, are people basically good and they just need a better environment? Or are people basically evil and they need to be held back from their natural tendencies? You know, those answers are all parts of the students of the Bible. Um, I think there was some talk about the kingdom of heaven. Um, you could be confused about that. I'll maybe remember it. one of the other ones. I thought it was a pretty good point, but I, if I can't remember it, far be it from you to have to remember all right, then I also said that there are some specific dangers to religious people in general. There's a lot of people who, for whom religious um, life and their civil, political, uh, patriotic life, you could even say, are all mixed together. They can't really tell them apart. And that's not true just in the United States. A lot of parts of the world are that way that, you know, an Islamic nation is Islamic in religion and politics. There's for them, there's not any distinction, and um, and for Americans, maybe there's more of a distinction. But some people who are religious can get confused and conflate symbols together. So, is the American flag a Christian symbol or an American symbol, and or both? And another question is: Is the cross a Christian symbol or an American symbol or both? And there are people in the world who would answer yes to one of those three, right? There are, there are people in the world who think that the cross is an American symbol. And there are people who would think that the cross is a Christian symbol. And there are other people who think it's a symbol for both. And so that's just one of the dangers for people who are religious in general. And I think we could probably find all kinds of examples in the Bible of that same thing. But I didn't look any up. Okay, so those are all of my assertions so far. So tonight I want to ask you this question. What, according to the Bible, are the top priorities for Christians today? What does the Bible say what does Jesus say? What does Paul say? What does the Bible say are the top priorities for you 
as a believer in today's world? Um, if you want to give a short answer, I'll repeat it. If you want to <clears throat> give a little longer answer, I'll bring you the microphone so we can record it on our podcast. So, okay, preach the gospel. Good. Others, what other? What are the top priorities? For love the Lord your God. Good. Love your neighbor as yourself. So we got the great commission and the, the greatest commandment, and the second is like unto it, right? What other? What other things might? qualify on the list you know if we're playing that family feud game and the top answer was ding so what are some other possible answers that would fit we got that the gospel is true yeah for sure so, so you could add in, so now do we proclaim the gospel, as Larry said, but we would defend the gospel. We'd, we'd uh, be apologetic, of, and <clears throat> not in a I'm sorry way, but in a defense way, right, explaining it. <clears throat> Any others? Okay, go make disciples. What was that, Joel? Yeah, keep ourselves from idols, so... Personal purity, living a life that's holy. Yeah, yeah, those are top priorities. What other top priorities do you have as a believer that has God wants you to have, John? Okay. Um, providing mercy or gentleness was this the way you said it. I think you're kind of referring to like, he has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to love mercy Show kindness. Yeah, blessed are the merciful. Yeah, blessed and the gentle. Yeah, good. Okay. Um, I wish I'd have brought the mic over for Joel, but he basically was referring to James, and he said, uh, basically to summarize it, remember the poor, right? The pure religion is this that is faultless as to um, orphan and widows. Yeah. So remember the poor is an important priority. Yeah. Read your Bible, study God, grow spiritually, pray. Yeah. Your personal sanctification. Provide for your families. Yep. If you don't, if a person fails to do so, that's worse than an unbeliever, Paul says. So so we're supposed to provide for our families, raise our children. Okay. Yeah. For I, I'm assuming for Christians, right? But yeah, uh, Christians need to believe the gospel. Yeah. Yeah, that's the starting point. And a daily reminder. <clears throat> I think you've done really well, probably better than I did. But I have a, a list of some things that I have some scriptural support for um, that you've mentioned already. First of all, proclaim the gospel. So ding, ding, the top answer was... 
And so Larry gets team gets the points on that one. But uh, there's that's in several places, right? Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations. That's what Joe said. And baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and so on. And then I, I love Paul in 1 Corinthians. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So that's priority language there, right? Nothing but this. That's what I resolved to do. I came to you in weakness and with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. I just, man, we need to remember that, that it's not the eloquence and sophistication of the orator, because if it is, then you would trust the orator. It's the word that the orator is saying that is God's power, the gospel. So proclaim the gospel. It's a high priority. I also had not to be accused of trickery. So nobody got that one, but I thought of that one. And these are not in priority order. These are all candidates for the question, what are our priorities? But one of the things I thought of right away in this proclaim the gospel is to not be accused of being a trickster. In 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says, Therefore, since through God's mercy we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. And so I, I think that that's really a high priority to be who we say we are. All the cards are on the table. I'm not playing a game. This is not a manipulation. I'm not baiting and switching. It's the gospel on the table. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So if somebody doesn't hear the gospel, it's, I'm, I'm by inference here, it's not a, a political problem, right? It's a God of this age blinding their hearts because of their sin problem. That's why they need to be um, respond to God's grace. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. Isn't that something? God made the light go on in our hearts to see Jesus. So um, another priority that I have is that we're supposed to live in ways that give glory to God. So I don't know, some of you got close to this a little bit about sanctification and reading your Bible, but um, I specifically thought of some verses that talk about we're supposed to live in a way that gives glory to God. 
like DJ said in the message this morning, he leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's the one who gets the credit for the fact that his sheep are walking in the straight paths. And so um, places I went to get this is Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus said, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. So you and I are supposed to be light in our world, right? In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We're supposed to live in a way that gives glory to God in heaven. Others would say, wow, they must be believers. How else could they act that way? How else could they endure suffering that way? How else could they go through setbacks and disappointments and persecutions and deaths and because we believe in Jesus? And then Peter, in chapter 4, 1 Peter, he says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. So he's talking about suffering in general, right? Don't be surprised by suffering. Don't be surprised by persecution even. It's not strange. And he says, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. So it, it's, it's contributing to a cool moment in the future, right? The joy of Jesus' glory. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Isn't that something? I, I, I so much want to be insulted for that reason, not for all the dumb reasons I might... <laughs> be insulted for him. And then he says, if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. You shouldn't suffer because you're a meddler. What's a meddler? A busy, a provoker, a fight maker, right? A person who stirs up conflict. Don't be persecuted for that. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. So I would say that a high priority for Christians is to live in a way that gives glory to God, even if, or no matter what, is that a better way to say it? No matter what it looks like it costs in the world. So we can't resort to using methods that are evil or mean. Um, another priority, I don't think anybody said it specifically, but bearing fruit, the fruit of the Spirit, we're supposed to do that, right? The text tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. And so as believers, there is no law out there. There's no nation that has a law against you being gentle. And it would be a shame for a believer to conduct themselves in the world in a way where people knew that we were not gentle 
And I don't see any excuse, political or otherwise, that would justify us not behaving according to the fruit of the Spirit. So that's another priority. And then I also picked um, treasures in heaven. One of our priorities is to set our future there, not here. Jesus says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so I think this is just a good reminder to believers to be heavenly-minded in our value system in the end. And then uh, I don't think anybody thought of this one. And again, my list was perhaps a little bit skewed towards what are the priorities for Christians in contrast to the way I see a lot of so-called Christians conduct themselves in today's political world. But... Um, this last one I have is to be ready for Jesus's return. That's one of our priorities. We need to be ready. According to Jesus, he says, be dressed. In Luke 12, he's telling the parable, uh, the story, be dressed, ready for service, and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good. For those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Amen? Yeah. I don't want to be so preoccupied with my affairs here on this earth when the knock comes on the door for me to say, Go away, I'm busy right now. I'm still trying to balance my checkbook. Quit interrupting me. Right? I want. It'll be good for me if I'm watching for Jesus when he comes. So those are the things I thought of. But again, your list was as good, and I'm sure there are more things we could think of. Does anybody have any um, responses, questions, thoughts, or closing affirmations or advertisements or anything else that you would like to share with me as we wrap up? Joel, let me bring the microphone to you. Just, just kind of a quick wrap-up for myself is when we're tempted to consider that politics and politicians and the things of this world are our everything, these are our everything. Jesus is our everything. And so we shouldn't get upset by politics. We should rejoice in Jesus Christ instead. Yeah, I think I would agree with that for sure that the um, spirit of what you're saying, but I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that politics we should avoid at all, right? We can engage in it, and I don't think you're saying we're supposed to abstain from it entirely. Right, don't give it your heart. And that, that's what, so I, I'm trying to say that, um, that I, I see, a, and this is an argument from silence, I suppose, but I don't see anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus says, make sure the speed limit is 25 miles an hour. He, there, this, this trying to delve into contract, and he wants us to be loving. And so um, the agenda for a Christian 
Some of us might be called to very deliberate and intentional political action, and we're all going to give an account for what we do and say, but um, not everybody is called the same level, maybe, and these priorities still have to be priorities compared to that other thing. And so what I'm trying to say also then is, for example, I would regard it as an error in judgment for a Christian to say, it's okay if I lie in order to win this election because the stakes are so high. The ends don't justify the means to me. I don't think you can cross that line. You need to not compromise the fruit of the Spirit or living in a way that gives glory to God. It would, I, I don't see Jesus endorsing that. We're not supposed to be accused of trickery. So, so I, I, would, I would argue that there isn't any stake so high that we would compromise the Lord Jesus. We, D- Daniel, in his role in government, which was very high, high role, right up in the echelon, he was very competent, his enemies could not find him corrupt nor negligent, and yet he never compromised his faith. They all knew that the only thing they could do was get him to be faithful to his faith, and that's why they had to make a law against his faith. So that that's how they could throw him in the lion's den was to get a law out there about praying. And so the scope, the sovereignty of the state messed with the sovereignty of the church and made a law so that, and so Daniel says, okay, I'm going to the lion's den. Steve. Just to build a little bit more on the fruit of the spirit, you know, it's, it's up, it's, those are contrasted with sort of the sinful nature. And some of the things in the sinful nature are hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. So, I mean, if, if our, um, it's a way to check your heart, you know, like, is my involvement, participation, politics, am I more in line with the fruit of the spirit or am I more in line with the sinful nature of hatred, discord, dissensions, factions, that kind of a thing. So, Again, it's a priority, like there are some reasons for some people to be heavily involved in politics, but there's an opportunity to check your heart and see what fruit am I manifesting right now? Yeah, very good. Thank you for pointing out that there is a balancing uh, that fruit of the Spirit has a, is in contrast to the fruits of the sinful nature and, and um, the ends don't justify the means and you need to check your heart. Yeah, good. Any other th- closing thoughts? Well, I hope you're encouraged. And again, I am so encouraged by your willingness to go through this. And I haven't had any um, threats on my person or anything. So you've all been very kind. And um, and so in a couple of weeks, I want to, again, if you have an opportunity to think about, if you would like to make a statement or an adjustment or to my perspective, I certainly give you that opportunity and if we get done early we can dismiss early next time so it's your fault anything else all right father in heaven thank you so much for uh, telling us what to do you know this list of priorities is um we shrink back it's just so much to do and we're not worthy or able 
But then I'm reminded that it's really you are doing these things. They're the fruit of the Spirit, not my fruit. And they're the things that the Lord Jesus, who's begun a good work in us, he will, he will carry it on to completion. And so we rest in the fact that you will, by your grace, make us beautiful for the name of the Lord Jesus, that you will show yourself strong in our midst, not because we're strong, but because you are. And so we, we yield to you, we trust you, and we ask that we would encourage our brothers and sisters as we engage our world, as we conduct ourselves, if we, as we talk to people about politics, as we, as we listen to one another, that we would do so in a way that honors the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. You are dismissed.